0: Have you ever lost a friend? I'm not talking about the rest in peace losing of a friend. I'm talking about maybe a guy that you went to elementary school with, and you went to middle school with, and you went to high school with, and then he went to one school, and you went to another. You graduate, get married, have kids, get a job, and it just seems like. While at one point in time, you had been the best of buds, now the miles and the years and the wrinkles and the gray hair have caught up with you, and it just seems like it's been forever. You've lost this friend, and not through any kind of hostility. It's just kind of been the rigmarole of life, and they've gone one direction, and you've gone another. It's it's funny for guys in particular. Ladies, I can't speak for your gender, nor do I want to. But you do seem a little bit more relationally competent than men are, because guys, women—they just tears and hugs, and you know that's all good. Um, guys, when we're we see somebody that we haven't seen for a while that used to be good friends, one of us goes to shake hands, and the other's like hugging, and you're you know doing this. It looks like you're doing some kind of pantomime show. It's it's a weird thing. Uh, I had the opportunity this week something that I have known but didn't didn't realize were, Uh, sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner, and my uh, aunt and uncle are here, or at my mom's house, mom and dad's house, and uh, they're talking about how much they love their new preacher. And their preacher was a guy that I had uh, discipled as a seminary student, and um, I think 13 years ago, he was Joseph, Marcy was Mary, and a one-year-old Chloe was baby Jesus, and they sang as part of a Christmas musical, and Matt is now my uncle's new pastor, and my aunt is his secretary, <laughs> and so, you know, from Kentucky to South Florida, um, it was funny, because my uncle took a picture of our, you have to do pictures on Thanksgiving when your family gets together, it's obligatory, um, whether you like pictures or not, you have to do family photos, you got to smile, and he, he sent a, text, texted a, a picture of my family to Matt, and Matt said, I'll be right over, and my uncle said, oh, no, 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 we're in, we're in Fort Lauderdale, we're not in, Sebring, and so Matt and I had the opportunity to kind of text and spoke on the phone briefly to just say, "Hey, man, we need to catch up when it's not family and everything else going on." But it was kind of nice to kind of reconnect with a friend that I think it's been 12 years or 10 years since we've spoken, and just kind of a neat thing to kind of uh, that—that's the good story of kind of losing a friend through distance and then kind of regaining it back. But today, when we talk about losing a friend, We see something very poignant. It's the story of you and it's the story of me in the passage that we look at today because it it is the story of Peter's denial of Christ. The story concludes with Peter weeping bitterly because he realizes what he has done in betraying a friend who, the Bible says, will always stick closer than a brother. The one who said that he came to give his life as a, ransom for many, including Peter who denied him. There is no one among Jesus's most intimate group of followers who protested their loyalty more loudly than Peter. And that makes his denial so inexcusable. Everyone else may deny, but not me. Jesus, you know me. I'm, I'm your man. And so the thing that I find interesting is last week as we looked at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 26, Jesus was arrested. And as we move into chapter 27 next week, his trial will begin. And it's really only by the most generous of concessions that we can actually call what Jesus undergoes a trial. It is not a trial, it's more of a plot. But in our passage here, right before Jesus' trial, Peter goes through a figurative trial. He's got a jury of his peers that are accusing him of something to which he will provide evidence to deny what they assert. And I think Matthew's doing something really ingenious here. By juxtaposing Peter's figurative trial right before Jesus' literal trial, he is inviting us to compare and contrast how these two men bear up under pressure. Jesus, of course, makes the good confession before Pilate that he is the king, that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, while the outcome is not good, for him personally, bears up well. Peter, on the other hand, fails in his trial under far less threatening conditions. And so it's a very simple passage that we look at this morning. It's uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. Just a few short verses. And quite honestly, some of my explanations will be very simple. And uh, perhaps... um, for which you will rejoice relatively brief. Um, Let me give you the points here. So that way you can write down at least your first three points and you can then listen instead of worrying about what's going to come up. As we see Peter's three denials um, happen, and you're not going to be able to follow on the the screen here. We'll stick with the first one. Peter begins by claiming simple ignorance. It's your first point. Peter then ups the ante in the second point. With an oath of truthfulness in his third denial, number three, Peter finally cusses and curses his hearers and himself. And I'm going to assert that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit oversaw the inclusion of this story in the gospel is to inspire some humility among his modern-day followers. We all deny the Lord who has bought us in diverse and creative ways. But aren't you grateful that your denials are not greater than his persevering love for for you? We just sang about how he gives us more than we deserve. Friend, do you know what you would get if you deserve? It's a four-letter word. It starts with H and ends with L. It's not good. But he gives us more than we deserve. So let's look at this passage and see what we can learn from this. Beginning in verses 69 and 70, we see Peter first claim simple ignorance. I flipped over a page. i got to flip back here. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant approached him, and she said, You were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you are talking about. When we last saw Peter, he was swinging a sword trying to assassinate someone, to which he failed miserably. All he was able to do was cut off his ear, which Jesus fixed relatively quickly and easily. And then all of the disciples fled. Well, now Peter is following from a distance. He has plucked up enough courage To begin following Jesus again, which is something that the other ten disciples don't do. But there's still a cowardice that's involved. Plucked it enough, plucked up enough courage to follow Jesus. But while Jesus is inside the palace of Caiaphas, Peter's in the courtyard. It's interesting that he is um, outed by a servant girl. And she says, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. What does that mean for a second? We all know English. English. Uh, We're not in Georgia, you know, so uh, we're, we're, we're doing well here. When she says, you were with the Galilean too, she means there was someone else who was with Jesus. Most scholars believe that the reason that Peter got access to the high priest's courtyard was because John had an inn. The apostle John had an inn with the priestly caste. And so John was there, and John is obviously not embarrassed to be identified with the Galilean. So John is off hobnobbing with whoever his peer group is. Peter, in the middle of the night, goes to the center of this courtyard where, uh, guys, let's just admit it, we have a certain fascination with bonfires. If there's a fire, we're going to be close to it. They didn't have Adirondack chairs or camping chairs, but in the cool of the evening, all the guys are standing around warming up their hands. And this lady recognizes him and says, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. We'll find here very quickly that while Peter, Peter's design is not necessarily to interact with anyone, um, he goes to the fire to warm himself. Um, evidently, the temperature around the fire gets hot enough that he doesn't want to be by the fire anymore. We'll see that here in just a second. It becomes too hot for him. When she uh, claims to recognize that he was a follower of the Galilean, it says that Peter denied it in front of every, everyone. The verb for deny is the exact same verb in Greek that is used for to repudiate or to disown. Here, Peter has just barely picked himself off the, off the floor of fleeing his master. And he has plucked up enough courage to follow at a distance. And yet, when he is inquired of, perhaps by a teenage girl, he disowns Jesus. He does what every husband does when we don't want to hear our wife telling us the chores that we need to do. I don't even know what you're talking about. You told me to put up the Christmas tree? You could have told me. He pretends total ignorance. What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Peter claims simple ignorance. And so his denial is not as bad as it could be. But wait, just like those late night infomercials, there's more. Verses 71 through 72, we see Peter up the ante with an oath of truthfulness. When he had gone out to the gateway, he wanted to get away from the fire because it just got a little tad bit uncomfortable, a little too hot under the collar, that little girl asking him questions that he didn't want to answer. So he leaves the crowd to go to the gateway to get away from the crowd. Another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it, but he didn't just deny it this time. He denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. To avoid more awkward conversation, Peter retreats from the edge of the crowd. We know from the other gospels that he was in the center of the courtyard warming his hands. When the little servant girl asks the question, Peter says, I can't stay here. And so he steps away from the fire to the gateway and he literally walks backward into darkness. What's the result? A lady then identifies him and makes the same charge. And now Peter's denial escalates. At the very first time he claimed ignorance, now he swears, he takes an oath. And what does he say? He denies that he even knows the man. Now, we all know who the man is. The man. It's some generic, indescript, vague description for the person that he left everything to follow for the last three years. He didn't say, I don't know Jesus. He can't even bring himself to mention his name. He says, the man, whoever it is. I swear, honest, honest, don't know who he is. This brings up an important issue because you don't have to read the Bible much to know that Jesus had a lot to say about oaths. As a matter of fact, he said, don't do them. If you have to swear in pinky promise and scouts honor nanu, nanu, whatever it is, to make it sound like you're telling the truth. He says, just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't take oaths. But here's the thing that's really interesting. This whole issue of oaths happens all over the place in the story of Jesus's crucifixion uh, Crucifixion uh, narratives. As a matter of fact, uh, just last week when we were looking at Jesus before Caiaphas, Caiaphas places Jesus under an oath and says, I adjure you by God in heaven to tell us plainly whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus takes an oath that is forced upon him and is not held guilty for doing that. But Peter freely makes an oath that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has specifically forbidden. Why? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What is Peter trying to do with his oath? He's trying to make his promise look like a truth. And he figures by swearing, now maybe my chicanery won't be found yet, found out. Peter freely makes an oath while Jesus merely takes an oath that is forced upon him. An oath is a, uh, the process of uh, solemnizing the truth that you claimed and invoking God's character. Here's the thing that's most ironic as we begin to compare and contrast Peter's trial with Jesus's. Jesus tells the truth under oath and is condemned to death. Peter uses an oath to cover his lying and he escapes unscathed. Doesn't that just burn you up? You ever told the truth and gotten in trouble for it? Surely that's had to have happened to you. Some prejudice... You've stood up for your faith, and you think, oh, God's going to show up, and this is going to be awesome. I'm going to get that promotion. My light shine, this little light of mine. And then you find out that because of your faith, you don't get the job. Isn't it terrible when unrighteousness seems to prevail? But Jesus is clear, don't make oaths. Jesus tells the truth under oath, condemned to death. Peter uses an oath to cover his lying and he escapes unscathed. Peter's sin as he backs away from the light into the darkness. Peter's sin increases both in quantity. There was one denial, now there's two. And it increases in its quality. Before it was simple ignorance. Now he's swearing, Scout's honor. I didn't do it. Third, Peter finally cusses and curses his hearers and himself. Verses 73 and 74. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, You certainly are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then Peter started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Peter's accent gives him away. It's a first century version of racial profiling. You're not from these parts you got a little lisp, you've got a little accent, you've got something that is going on, and Peter is beside himself, because in John's recounting of this story, when the third question is asked by the people in the courtyard, we're told specifically that the person is a relative of Malchus, who is the guy that Peter cut his ear off, so now Peter thinks, man, the gig is up, the gig is up, hey, son of God, I ain't worried about you because my God is now myself, and I have to save myself. So he's going to lie, and he's going to up the ante and make it as uh, extreme as he can by cussing and cursing to get out of what he is dealing with. The truth of the matter is that Peter could have gone, well, of course I'm a Galilean. This is Passover week. There are thousands of Galileans in town for the Passover. I'm just one of many. But he, he didn't think like that. He was not a smart sinner, which is a good thing. He was not a smart liar. There are much more conceivable ways to lie. So the point here is not learn how to lie well. It's don't lie at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But there are other ways that Peter could have saved his skin without going the direction that he did. Here's the thing that's terrible. Having lied twice, guess what he does now? What are you going to do if you lie twice? You're going to lie a third time. It is amazing. You know, I tell my kids this, and I haven't said it recently, Thinking something sinful and doing something sinful means that you sin twice. You get that? Thinking it, if you can stop yourself at thinking, don't pass yourself on the back because you've still sinned. But when you have premeditated your sin, you haven't just done one sin. There are multiple sins that are involved. And he's just saying, don't, don't do this because once you begin You start in motion a momentum that makes it very difficult to end. So he finds himself forced to lie again, yet he does it with even greater force than he did the first or the second time. As a matter of fact, he issues his strongest denial, yet he curses and swears an oath. The word for curse is the same uh, Greek word that we use for to anathematize, to pronounce a curse on It's what Catholics have done to Protestants. If we don't believe Roman Catholic doctrine, we are accursed. We are anathema. That's what he's saying. He's cursing the people that are insisting that he is a follower of Jesus. He is asking God to punish him if he is lying. And I want you to get exactly what Jesus is saying, or what Peter is saying. He is not only denying that he's not a follower of Jesus, he's denying to have any knowledge of who the person is. That's amazing. There is no small degree of irony that as we looked at last week's passage, as Jesus uh, made his confession before Caiaphas when he was placed under oath, it says that he tore his robe and they said, what do you want to do? We need to, he needs the death penalty. And then it says that they spit on him and they beat him and they asked him to prophesy, who, 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 who hit you, Jesus? They are mocking Jesus' prophetic powers. And yet at the very moment that he is being beaten and mocked for his prophetic powers, Peter is experiencing Christ's prophetic insight coming true to the T. What has Jesus said? You will deny me. You will deny me. All the disciples will flee. And friend, let me just encourage you, when you see the painting of the Last Supper, and you go, oh boy, that'd be wonderful to be there. No, it really wouldn't. Because you know what you'd do after Thanksgiving dinner? You would flee. You need to see yourself in the painting, not with the rosy red cheeks of a cherub, but with the high-tailed picking your man's skirt up and running as fast as you can because you don't want to be identified with Jesus. The story is in there to be a portrait of you and me and our lack of faithfulness to our faithful God. Peter is experiencing the complete power of Jesus' prophetic prediction in his experience here. And if we stopped here, it really is, it's a very poignant story. It's not a very um, encouraging story, but it's put here, I think, by the Spirit for our instruction in this sense. It is very easy throughout history. Uh, the Jews have been a despised race because they killed the Son of God. The Romans have been held guilty because they allowed the tragedy, the travesty of justice to take place that led to the crucifixion of Christ. But in the midst of all, this, all of this happening on a universal scale, it is not just Jews and Romans, it is disciples. It is followers who do not follow as well as they proclaim, as much as they protest. I'll share a story, and uh, not here today, so I'm not going to mention a name. Um, we send out quarterly uh, giving statements. So once a quarter, if you uh, give to the church, you get a record for accountability. That's really what it is. And I happen to have a lunch appointment with uh, someone uh, just a couple weeks ago, and it was, I guess, the week after um, giving statements had gone out. And I uh, walk into the restaurant, and he goes, He's just shaking his head as I'm walking up to the table. I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, man, I just opened up my giving statement. I'm like, okay. He's like, man, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, why? He goes, well, this last three months have been really tough. And if I hadn't gotten that, I would have assumed I was a lot more faithful financially to the church than I have. And when I had this amount staring me in the face, he goes, I feel like I shouldn't even show up at church. I'm not doing my part. I said, well, to be quite honest, I don't know what's on your giving statement. You just told me. And I said, here's the deal. What are you going to do about it? He goes, "Uh, I can't make up for it because I can't back tithe three months because I don't have that much money. But I'm going to be a lot more principled about doing what I want to do. What was the problem? This young man had assumed that his faithfulness was much higher And in truth, what it was. Let's just put a couple zeros on the end of that statement. He thought he was giving this, and he dropped the change in his pocket in the plate. It was really the reality of what it was. Friends, without accountability, you will always assume that Jesus is really lucky to have you on his team. You want you want an honest opinion about where your spiritual maturity is, ask your wife or your kids and then tape your mouth shut so that you don't have the chance to lie to try to cover up how spiritual you think you really are. Ask your wife, hey, when was the last time we read the Bible together? When was the last time I led a conversation helping us apply God's word to our life? When was the last time you didn't have to make me go to something at church or get involved in service or serve in our community to help people less fortunate so that we can point them to the majesty of who Christ is, we will always assume that our followership is A+, plus, when the reality is when accountability happens. <laughs> we just don't want to get that report card. And so I think the story is here to encourage us to be accountable for the things that we say are really important. What I'm grateful for is that this is not where the story ends. And the story, the way that it ends, may not at first glance appear to you to be something that is encouraging. Friend, let me just encourage you. The last verse and a half, I find tremendous encouragement from. Because in those verses, in those sentences, we see the providential and restoring grace of God. Look at verse 74 and 75. It says, Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Immediately, A rooster crowed. Something happened. The rooster crowed. And. A linking conjunction. And. Rooster crowed. Something happened. Rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he... Wept bitterly. Peter had sworn an oath, and as a part of that oath, it invoked the punishment of God if he was proven to be lying. And yet, God graciously did not bring the punishment that Peter deserved. I think we could all say that the crowing of the rooster in the remembering of Jesus' prophecy brings its own grief from one perspective, but from another perspective, that crowing of the rooster can be viewed. As a preventative grace. Friend, what has been the trajectory of Peter Peter in this episode? Simple ignorance, oath of truthfulness, cussing and cursing. It ain't good. What would have happened if the rooster didn't crow? Would there have been a fourth denial? Would there have been a fifth denial? Would Peter have completely walked away from it? Would, Would Peter have fallen so fatally that it was impossible for him to get back up? Quite possibly. The trajectory was not an encouraging one. And yet God, by his grace, allows the rooster to crow and allows Peter's mind to remember. And this process prevents Peter from traveling even farther down the road of denial. God providentially comes to the rescue of his erring disciple. You know, there's a scripture passage, and I can't remember where it is, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 10, maybe 2 Corinthians 10, where it says that no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but through the temptation, he will provide with it. You know what the scriptures say? A way of escape. What has just happened with Peter? If we left Peter to himself with no providential and restoring grace of God, Peter is lost it doesn't matter what he has protested. It doesn't matter that he's got a perfect disciple's attendance pin. It doesn't matter any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter that he made a confession at one point in his life. If Peter was left to himself, he's an apostate, not an apostle. He is lost. He is disowned. The one that still owns him and proves it because Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, you know what they will do? They will come to me. And the one who comes to me, you know what I will do? I will never cast him out. What has Peter done? He's cast Jesus out because that's the expedient thing to do. But as the rooster crows and as he remembers the words of Jesus, not just about his denial, but maybe about, hey, I'm not going to cast you out. He remembers. My, uh, My daughter has a little box, and um, Reed, you'll like this, okay? It's good for you, not good for me. Um, every Wednesday night, Reed has a little outline that he does with the youth service, and I think since Chloe has been in the youth group, every little sermon outline that she's ever had is in that box. Now, the ones from Sunday morning, she throws those away, um, but the, the ones from Wednesday night, she, she keeps those. Now, I don't know that she pulls them out and reviews what Reed has taught, but there's at least some very meager attempt to remember instruction. My concern is... That's what happens with your bulletin. Right in the garbage. With all the rest of that junk mail that you get that you don't even open. Now, I'll say very forthrightly, I do not think that I have anything worth saying that is worth you hearing. But I think hidden within God's word are vast treasures that are worth your attention. When you remember God's word, You'll not take that next step backwards into darkness. God's word will keep you from um, cranking on your laptop late at night when your wife and kids are asleep and looking at things that you shouldn't look at. God's word will keep you when someone is needling you and trying to press your buttons from blowing your top and going all Vesuvius on people. God's word will encourage you to not work extra hours and to go home and to be a husband and a father. God's word in remembering will keep you from saying whatever you need to say to get whatever you want that's not within God's will for you. What's your plan for remembering God's word? Peter didn't have a plan. But God graciously intervened to keep him from going down the path that he was going. The truth is Peter needed to be broken to be the leader that God desired him to be. What would God need to do in your life to make you the person that he would have you to be? That's a frightening question to ask. Because for every leader who points faithfully to God, there's a certain degree of heartbreak and and brokenness that has to happen. Honestly, without Peter's breaking, we probably wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is really just Peter's memoirs. Mark was not a disciple. He was a second generation believer who recorded Jesus' life through Peter's recalling of what he remembered. Peter's road for being the disciple that God would have him to be was hard. And we noted just a few weeks ago, Peter was too confident in himself. He was condescending to the other disciples. They might deny you, but not me. And he contradicted what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is gonna happen. He goes, not gonna happen. We're reminded that sin is an equal opportunity employer, whether you are a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Gentile, red, yellow, black, or white, young, or old. And we never have the right to look down on people because their sins are less acceptable than ours. Sin lives within us. Peter was way too confident in himself, and this led to laziness in prayer in the garden. And yet, through it all, Jesus knew that Peter loved him. Why? Because Peter was failing in a situation that he would not have even been in if he didn't love the Lord. He would not have gone to the courtyard, to enemy central His love was imperfect. And if Peter would not pray for himself, Jesus would. And we don't see it in our passage, but in Luke's recalling of that night before his arrest. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Here's what the scripture says. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. You haven't prayed for yourself because obviously you're so cocky that you don't think that you need it. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You might fall. You will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is telling him, you're going to fall. But I'm not casting you out. When you stand back up, strengthen your brothers. That explains why Peter tripped, but he didn't fall fatally. Did you know that Jesus has prayed the exact same thing for you? It's really kind of sweet to think that Jesus prayed for Peter. As he's announcing his betrayal, he says, Peter, I've prayed for you. But Jesus has prayed for us as well. In John 17, verse 20 and 24, Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden, he does for us what he did for Peter. He says this, I pray not only for these, my disciples, but I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Who's that? Everybody else that wasn't an apostle. You and me. The worldwide church of Christ. I, I pray for them, who will believe in me through their message. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. So, end goal, we're going to be with Jesus. Right now, we're going to trip and we're going to fall, and it's not going to be pretty, and we might think we have fallen off the pathway, but Jesus is praying that we will be with him. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ did that for Peter, which teaches us, praise God, that there's hope for us as well. Your sin is not the last statement. Jesus' persevering love is. So how do you fail to confess him? Are you worried at school that you're going to be known as a Jesus freak? Does your language Monday through Friday, uh, would it not be acceptable in our children's ministry on Sunday? the things that you laugh at and the humor that you use, the anger that you allow to spill out, the media that you consume. It's not just Peter who falls, it's every disciple. And we ought to confess Christ as often as we can. You see, I think here's the irony. For us, knowing of Jesus' unfailing love, that should energize an unflinching discipleship. He loves us. He's not going to cast us out. And instead of that being permission for us to do what he doesn't want us to do, that should cause us, come what may, to be willing to follow him faithfully. And that, my friends, is why Peter weeps. He has cast out of his heart the Jesus who has said he would never cast Peter out if his confession was sincere. And so this morning, do you flinch in your discipleship? Ooh, that's too much to ask, Lord. Or do you recognize that he will give you the grace to deal with whatever you have to deal with because it's what he's told you to do? Don't flinch. Don't give up. Allow the love of Christ to motivate right-hearted obedience to the God who gave himself for you, pray with me, please. Father, just this week, we have kind of proverbially counted our blessings, and chief, most among those would be the life that you have given us in Christ. And yet, in your providence, here on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, you give us this passage of Peter's denial for us to reflect upon and to meditate upon. Father, I pray that you give us the brokenness to admit the ways in which we grade our discipleship on the curve. We think much more highly of ourselves than we ought. And like the young man in the illustration, there are ways in which we assume that we have followed you with much greater fervor and passion and consistency and faithfulness than reality shows. Father, I pray this morning that as we marvel about the grace of God in Christ who gave his life to save us from our sins, that you will help us to turn from our sins and to turn from Christ. That is not something that we just do once and for all. It is something that we must do every day as we seek to follow you faithfully as your disciples. So today, God, I pray that you break our hearts, that you encourage obedience, Mm -hmm. that you help us to know your unfailing love, that you help us to live out unflinching followership for you are worthy. For those of us here that are believers, God, we pray that you work your grace of repentance in our lives and that you help us before we leave this building to bow on our knees before you and to ask for your forgiveness, to ask for the strength to obey you the way that you deserve. Father, for those of us that may not be followers of Christ, I pray that today their conscience is pricked to understand that God is far more glorious than their minds can even conceive. That today could be a day where they have a relationship that is made right with you because they confess their sins in the greatness of the Saviorhood of Jesus Christ. Following you is the greatest privilege in our life and it's the chief most thing for which we should be thankful. And I pray that we demonstrate our thankfulness in how we live not just in how we sing or sit in pews. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.